Right, let's pray to start with. Yeah, Lord, we just thank you for your word, Lord, and I just pray, Lord, that your word will just go out there this morning and just achieve what it is you want to achieve, Lord. We'll not come back to you, void, Lord. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to work as it's already working here this morning, Lord. Just continue to work in our hearts, Lord, in our minds, Lord. Just open what I have to say to everybody, Lord. We just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, yeah, interestingly enough, it's almost like God had a hand in this. The thing today is going to be called, or oh, preached, in fact, not the thing. Uh, it's going to be called Open Your Eyes. Okay. Check anyone's got their eyes open. Yeah. I'll open mine now. So it says, the eyes are the window to the heart. And what does the Bible say about the heart? Proverbs 4, 23. Guard your heart above all else, above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Now, if I was going to write a list of top 10 scriptures to live by, I shouldn't be doing these things, but if I was going to do one, that would be in it, I think. It's such an important thing to guard your heart above all else. It's such an important thing. So we can see that we need to pay careful attention to what we allow our eyes to survey. In Matthew 6, verses 22 and 23, it says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness... How great is the darkness? That's a sobering thought, isn't it? That what we think is light within our bodies is actually darkness to God. Now, in in Jesus' time, in in the Roman sort of Greek times around that time, a person's inner character was said to be reflected in their eyes. So I want to talk a bit about the eye to start with. And uh, for the purpose of this talk, it's going to be divided into three parts, okay, the eye. So we have the physical eye. That's the eye of the body, okay, this thing here. And it's the natural eye, if you like. And then you have the second part is the intellectual eye, the eye of the mind. Uh, this is expressed as our intellect and imagination. This is the eye that conceives and brings things into reality. And then we have, what well, I want to focus on today, really, is the spiritual eye. It sees spiritual truths, something you're unable to do with the physical or the intellectual eye. It's the eye of uh, perception and experience of spiritual things. It sees visions and understands uh, the divine realities in God's word. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So therefore, the person seen with natural eyes does not perceive the Spirit of God at all. It just seems complete folly to them, a waste of time. Like the other day when I said I was preaching in church at work, people just laughed. I was like, why are you bothering to do that for? It's just pointless. The fact is that the unspiritual person does not even want to know about the things of God because they don't understand them, so they can't evaluate them. And they are spiritually blind. But to experience the things of God, or just sight in general, you need two things, a source of light and the capacity to see that, that light. So we Christians, we walk by faith and not by sight, not by what we physically see, but we walk by what we know as the word of God. So in other words, in our natural eyes, we may see opposition and challenges and, and things against us, but in the, in the supernatural, 
we just know what God says and we just carry on in faith. And uh, there's a story in the Bible in Genesis 21 of, of Hagar, who is the maidservant of Abraham. And um, you may know the story that Abraham um, and Sarah, his wife, in the 90s, God says to Abraham, promising you're going to be a father of many nations. And uh, obviously Abraham believes this, but just as a double sort of insurance policy, they um, had discussed with his wife about having um, lying with his maidservant, and she has a child by Abraham called Ishmael. Now, years later, um, Sarah also bears a child through Abraham and called Isaac. Um, and uh, when um, it says in the Bible, when uh, Isaac is being weaned, Ishmael mocks him. And Sarah doesn't like this and she becomes distressed because she thinks that um, uh, Ishmael is going to inherit some of what Isaac should be having. So she tells Abraham, get rid of both Hagar and Ishmael. Now, Abraham's a bit distressed about this, but he prays to God about it, and God reassures him, all is going to be okay. But you picture this from Hagar's viewpoint, that she's one minute uh, in, in the safety and haven of Abraham's uh, family sort of thing, and the next minute she's thrown out, thrown out onto the streets, if you like, become a refugee without a home in, in her own country. She must be shocked. She must be fearful. And if we read in, the, um, in Genesis 21:15, we pick up a story. All she went out with, actually, was like a bit of food and some water. That's all she was given. So when the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes, and then she went off, and she sat down nearby, a bow shot away. For she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. But God heard the boy crying, it says here. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, and I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin, skin, uh, the skin with it. And it's interesting here, I mean, we don't, we don't know whether God miraculously just opened up a well there for her, or whether there already was a well of water there, but she was so distressed and so discomforted that she just failed to see it, because that's what happens sometimes. We just take our eyes off God. We feel we've been deserted. But what does the Bible say? God will never forsake us, never leave us. Either way, uh, we can see here, eyes are open to God's provision and what do we notice? The three things. One, that it was near. One, it was provided, uh, two, sorry, it was provided in their moment of need. And finally, it didn't need any exertion on her part to obtain it. It was just there. And that's what we need to remember for the will of Jesus, that all those things are available to us. They're always near, it's there in our moment of need, and we don't have to exert ourselves to get it. It's just given freely as a gift. So we move on to another story in Kings, um, 2 Kings, verse 6. And this is the story of Elisha and his servant. And just a bit of background in this. Elisha, you may know, is a prophet. And he's um, consistently, prophetically telling, uh, she see, he sees visions of what the king of Aram, who's, who's a, um, against the king of Israel, and he's telling the king of Israel what Aram's going to do. So he's always one head of, uh, the king of Israel is always one step ahead of, of the game. And obviously the king of Aram is really unhappy about this. And he finds out it's Elisha giving the information through God to um, the king of Israel. 
So he sends an army of um, horses and chariots to capture Elisha. So we pick it up in verse 15. And when the servant of Elisha got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots has surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Do not be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened his eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So we can see from this story that the servant's physical eyes were already open and he was looking into the hill of a distance and all he could see was trouble. But in the spiritual realms, when his eyes were really open to what was going on, he could see there was a greater army surrounding the, the, the other army, if you like. And it's interesting to know, isn't it? Elisha didn't pray for the situation to change, because sometimes when we're in battles, we ask for God to change the situation. But Elisha didn't pray for the, good, the situation to change or for the army to go or anything. All he prayed for was a servant, because to the reality of the spiritual realms around him. And with that, he felt hope and peace. Maybe that's something we need to pray for when we're in the midst of our trials, just to pray for the spiritual reality of what is around us. So, two lessons we can learn from those two stories. We must remember that God's provision and God's protection are always available to us, and they're always nearby. We may not see it with our physical eyes, but we know in the spiritual realms that it's there, okay? That last week, I was just, um, sometimes a small group of us meet uh, just before the service starts, um, pre-engine room prayers, um, and uh, I was bemoaning about the fact that, um, I was feeling a little bit discouraged probably, that I was bemoaning the fact I'd be more encouraged if I could see God clearly working in some of the things we're praying for. I mean, we're praying big prayers in there, I tell you, big prayers. But sometimes you go in there every week and you think... Come on, just, show us, just give us a little something to keep us going sort of thing. Um, but the great thing is, like, I was in there with Lorna and Helen at the time, and they just reminded me, although I knew this in my heart really, yeah, as iron sharpens arm, they just reminded me of some of the prayers that God's already answered for us. And that sort of encourages you. And the good thing was that as soon as we left there, although, and we came into engine room, Pastor Wendy had no idea about what we'd been praying about or speaking about. But the first thing she said was... Um, God is working behind the scenes. We need to know this and remember this, that he's always working. And I just thought, again, that's how, I love how God does that. He just speaks to you through somebody else. or They hear or they see him the message that he wants to bring just to encourage you. And although I now cannot see the things that I want to see happening, and I think I'm a bit impatient because I'm getting old. I'm thinking, I don't want to... <laughs> they need to happen quickly, Lord. You understand this, don't you? <laughs> but anyway, it just really reassured me, and it's really good. So thank you, Pastor Wendy, for hearing the call. I suppose that's the trouble, really. Because we can't literally see Jesus, we tend to underestimate who God is. You know, fear, discouragement, anger, sin, anxiety, uh, unforgiveness, depression, just ignorance, even our own identity can all cloud our vision. They can all block out the light of the reality in the spiritual realms keeping us in darkness. And that's the devil's plan, isn't it? He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants us to stay in that darkness so we just don't see what God has for us. 
And, you know, sometimes we just see ourselves like Gideon, who said, when the angel came to him, you must have the wrong person. I am the least of my family. Why have you come to me? Or like the ten spies who explored the promised land. And God had said to them, this is the land you're going to inherit, you're going to have, but just take it. But they saw themselves as grasshoppers up against giants. They just saw themselves as really small against these giant people. Only two spies saw in the spiritual realms what God had said. And they knew that the land was there for the taking. And that's obviously Caleb and Joshua. So imagine if we really took God at his word and determined that we would act upon the truth of his word and see the spiritual truths contained in it. Because what does the Bible say? How he sees us. And when we know we're imperfect beings, okay, we, we accept that. But we're loved. That's incredible love. I mean, Rachel was injured this morning, felt she heard from God just say, do you know how much Jesus loves you? And I don't think we do sometimes. We just can't grasp because that love is so great, we just can't grasp it. But we're loved. We're accepted. We're forgiven. We're significant. We're gifted. We're precious and honoured. We're sons and heirs. We're his handiwork, fearfully and wonderfully made. We're created to do good works, which God has already prepared for us. We're not just conquerors, we're more than conquerors. And we're God's children, and he will never forsake us. Now, I don't know about you, but that to me makes me think that we're pretty formidable people, really, with all that behind us. Now, we're unique. We don't have to try and be anybody else, because God loves us for who we are. But what if we flip that question around the other way? How do we see Jesus? How well do we really know him? This is a question God has been sort of speaking to me about, really. Um, are we deceiving ourselves? How well we really know Jesus? You know, this week, it was um, my wedding anniversary. Hello, Lisa. Um, yeah, and um, obviously, when you know, you're married, if you're married, you will know that you really get to know somebody in, 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 over a period of time, the real person, Okay. Um, if you're a child in a ma- <laughs> of a result of that marriage, you will know what your parents are really like, okay? And um, I hope it's a good thing. <laughs> I'll pray for you later, Jack. <laughs> but you know, when we, Lisa and I got married, we, we made a pledge before we got married that we would never argue, okay? <laughs> no, never ple- make a pledge before God, okay? But, <laughs> but we thought, yeah, we're going to... Um, you know, we never have... Because Lisa told me she's always right. So. <laughs> no, <laughs> we have disagreements sometimes, obviously. But there's, dis- there's a difference between disagreements and an argument, okay? And I think we're both fairly easygoing people, okay? But there is one thing that she says to me sometimes which does put a strain on our marriage, okay? I, I mean, I was being honest with you here. And, it's, and I think I mentioned this before sometime, some while ago. But it's when she just says a one sentence to me, can you just look in my handbag and get out my blank? And what's so unfair is the word just, as though it's a simple thing to do. You know, you would just think you open it up, look inside, pick out the phone or whatever it is. But never in the history of our marriage have I ever been able to find anything she's ever asked me to get in her handbag. And... I just, it's something beyond my reasoning, actually, like God is, but my understanding. Because when you're looking at her handbag, you find tissues, diary, a uh, phone charger, a bar of chocolate, um, half-eaten sweets, hand sanitizer, her works diary, a diary, um, emergency bar of chocolate. Um, it's just absolutely full of stuff. And it's got all these pockets and compartments, a false bottom. It's just... It's, 
it's unbelievable. And I think to myself, why am I so pathetic in this situation? But I realize now it's not just me. It's actually an affliction. And I know this because one of Nicole, her daughter's um, friends, came over once. And she said she had to get out of the house because her parents were having an argument. And I thought, oh, interesting. But I didn't, you know, didn't want to know about it. But apparently what happened was the wife had phoned up the husband who was at home and asked him to do something. And when she got home, it hadn't been done because he couldn't find what it was that he needed to do. And there'd been a big argument and she'd come out. But what Nicole's friend said was, and this is what I realise now, this affliction actually has a scientific name. Because he said that all he'd done had given was the man look. So now I know when I can't find the tool that I've left out to remind me to do a job that Lisa's asked me to do, because she's put it away, that I've given it the man look and it's sufficient why the job can't be done. That's a good reason. When she rearranges my sock drawer or my clothing drawer so I can't find the socks I want, I give it the man lock and then I have to go and speak to her and say, where is it? Or, or the typical one, when she's cooking and she asks me to get the paprika or such a thing out of the cupboard, I look at my endless jars of herbs and spices without success, and I say, I've given it the man look. You know my affliction. And she'll just quickly go there. But what do they mean when they talk about the man look? Okay. What are they talking about? I mean, There's women, obviously. <laughs> I can see here there's a lot of nodding of heads saying, yes, I know what you're talking about here, this man look. But they're talking about a superficial look. It's a quick rummage that scratches the surface, but it doesn't dig deep. You know, there's no real determination to really seek after what it is that's required. And really, isn't that how we are sometimes in our walk with Jesus? A bit superficial. If we look in Luke, um, and we, we, we talk about the road to Emmaus here, there was two disciples who were walking along the road discussing the events of Jesus' death, which had just very recently happened. And they were downcast and confused. Um, yeah, all their hope had gone because they, they'd pinned their hopes Jesus was going to do something incredible. Um, and they'd heard the reports that the tomb was empty. Um, and they're just trying to make sense of everything. And they're joined by this stranger. And he asked them, what's happening? What are you talking about? And they say to him, incredulously, haven't you heard? Are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's been going on? And when they explain to him what's happened, and Jesus is probably thinking, mm, actually, I was there. <laughs> but the thing is, they, were, they, you know, they say, well, we were hoping that he was the man that was going to redeem Israel. And now our hope is gone, sort of thing. And they didn't even recognize Jesus. This is the resurrected Jesus, obviously, by the way, just in case you're wondering. And Jesus retorts to them, how foolish and slow to believe all that's been prophesied. And then Jesus explains the scriptures to them. And at the end of the day, Jesus invites them um, in, into their, no, we don't. They invite Jesus <laughs> into their house uh, to have a meal. And we pick it up in verse 30. And at, t- at the table, Jesus took the bread gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and then he disappeared from their sight. Then after, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us where he talked to us and read and opened the scriptures to us? 
you know, the two disciples had almost certainly seen and heard Jesus in action before, uh, before his crucifixion, yet they failed to recognize him as he was walking along right beside them. They wanted to tell him about their anguish. You know, we were hoping. What we were expecting hasn't materialized. How often in our own lives are we caught up in our own sorrows that we don't recognize Jesus standing with us? But as these two guys are walking along with Jesus, he opens the scriptures to them, and they are drawn to him. They want him to stay in their presence. Hope is arising. Peace is arising. His warmth and love burns in their hearts. Their focus is no longer on themselves. Their pain, anger, frustration, and doubt is all leaving them. And then when their eyes were opened, they were filled with hope and joy. So much so that at the end of that um, story, it says that at once... Despite the dangers of travelling at night in that, at that time in that country, they immediately just ran back, probably with so much joy in their hearts, probably laughing and hugging and joyfully just, I don't know, just carried along in a wave of goodness and emotion sort of thing. They go and tell the other disciples that Jesus has risen. It's official. And Jesus' technique, basically, was always this, just open the scriptures. It wasn't difficult, really. There was nothing clever about what he was doing. He just opened the scriptures. You know, I remember, I mean, Dave isn't here today, I don't think, Dave Prince, but I know when, um, if you don't know the story, he was diagnosed with cancer, and basically um, he went downhill, and he was more or less told, you know, prepare for death. And what was our response as a church? Do we mope about in a despondent way and say, oh, these doctors, they're right, and what can we do? No, we opened the scriptures. That's what we did. And that's what happens, you see. Peace arises. Hope arises. And the more you open the scriptures, faith arises. And when faith arises, a fire arises within you. And that burns away the doubt and the despondency and the hopelessness of a situation. And all you can see is Jesus standing there with hope and the promise of healing. So what do we need to do to open the scriptures? Well, we know it's God's brief word, the living word. It's full of wisdom for living a full and meaningful life, filled with love and hope. The scriptures build faith, they give peace, they give direction, they give healing. They offer redemption, they prophesy the future. You know, ignorance is no defense if we don't know scriptures. When we meet with Jesus, we're not going to say, well, actually, I hadn't read that, or I didn't know that. He's just going to say, how slow are you? How foolish are you not to know this? And we know what's coming in the world because we can read the scriptures. We can prepare ourselves spiritually for those challenges which we know are on the horizon. We know the times we're living in now. We know what's coming. But we can prepare ourselves and make ourselves spiritually strong. You know, Psalm 119 verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Why did the psalmist pray that? Because he understood his life would be full of purpose and meaning if he could really understand what Jesus was saying in the scriptures. Now, when Jesus spoke to the two guys on the Emmaus Road, he enabled them to understand his mission. He reminded them what he had said and then explained how it all gelled together for good. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians uh, 1, verse 17 to 19, I keep asking that the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you have been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, his incomparably great power for us who believe. Yeah, Paul here is praying for us today that we really understand the greatness of God's immeasurable power of the Holy Spirit working through us so we can fully and effectively partake in the mission God has for us. No longer will we be hindered by a lack of purpose or powerlessness, but we'll be clothed with a certainty that God will meet all our needs through Christ and we can walk confidently in purpose and into our destiny. So where does wisdom and revelation come from? Well, Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. When we see what the scriptures say, when they're opened up to us, we have knowledge and understanding. Revelation comes from his word. So we may need Jesus, Jesus at a superficial level, but Paul wants us to go to a much deeper level. And a deeper level means operating in the supernatural as opposed to the natural. This is what Jesus and his disciples did and what we are called to do. And this is why I believe that Pastor Paul was just saying about Pentecostal churches are growing and because I believe they're just grasping hold of these truths that we need to start, you know, that's what Jesus did. He just operated in the supernatural. But he's given us those same abilities if we just took hold of them and grasped them. So how do we know? Well, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, Now to each one of us, the manifestation of a spirit is given for the common good. And here it's talking about spiritual giftings. And if you want to read what they are, they're all listed in verses 8 to 10 after that. But it's a gift that God's given us to be used to further the advance of the kingdom. And I've I've seen a quote, and I I can't remember who it was from, from, but it says, There is a vast and appalling unconcern about possessing spiritual gifts in the church. People aren't surprised at not having them because they lay dormant. So they are dismissed as unlikely I'd have that. Therefore, they don't expect to have them and do not expect to seek after them. But they're a gift from God. And scripture repeatedly tells us, earnestly seek after them. So what earnestly means, not giving them a man look, okay? But giving them a, a deep look. Yeah, imagine, well, the parable of the talents tells us how Jesus sees this apathy when we bury our gifts. And what does he call us? Worthless servants. Imagine you have a word of knowledge for somebody today, but you ignore it or you're sitting on it because you're not sure and you're a bit worried. You've got to step out in faith sometimes, and obviously wisdom, and just maybe just speak to Pastor Paul or Pastor Winnie and say, look, I might have heard this. Do you think it's likely? Does it line up with God's word? Is it always a starting point? What if you had the gift of healing? Is it lying unopened under your, your seat today? And there's sick people all around you, and you're just sitting there going, oh, we'll, we'll pray for you. And God's plan is for you to lay hands on that person and heal them there and then. You know, there's a story of a missionary um, in Africa who, who got a fever. Um, and there was obviously no medical help in this place. This is many years ago now, probably 100 years ago, I should think. And uh, so they were, this missionary was left to die on their bed uh, by the others because there's nothing else they could do. Um, and a few days later, his colleagues were discussing how to continue... And all of a sudden, this missionary just suddenly appeared amongst them, right as rain. His explanation was, he just suddenly became conscious. So obviously he must have been unconscious. 
But he felt this great warmth flowing through his body, all over his body. And it wasn't like the warmth or heat of a fever. It was like a nice warmth, if you like. A month later, he was at a meeting in London, and he was explaining how he was raised up. When at the end of the meeting, a lady came up to him and asked if he kept a diary. And he said that he did. And she explained on a certain day, she went to pray. And the Holy Spirit took a hold of her and brought this mystery to her mind. And she saw, and this is what she said, she saw in the spiritual realms, she obviously wasn't in Africa, she saw the missionary laid out hopeless on this bed. And she continued to cry out, and she's crying out in tongues until she saw him rise up and get out of the room. And then she said to him, this is the date this happened. And he looked in his diary, and it was the exact same date. Okay. But the thing is, you see, she was operating in something way beyond the normal and that's what's available to us. God wants us to do this. That's how Jesus operated. He spoke the word, but he just wanted to show how heaven works as well. It's all intertwined. But we must allow the Holy Spirit freedom to drive us, okay? He's our, he's our holy chauffeur, if you like, and take us to those deeper places. Yeah, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, God withholds nothing from us. Okay, we need to grasp that. If we look at um, the story of Luke, um, or in Luke, really, of the calling of the disciples. Um, uh, this is 5, verse 2, 2 to 6. This is Jesus speaking. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one, beginning, uh, sorry, the one belonging to Simon Peter, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. See, Jesus was seeing something that the disciples couldn't see. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night and we haven't caught a thing. Because you say so, I will let down the nets. And as we know, when they had done so, they caught such a large um, amount of fish that the nets began to break. Now, for me, there's an analogy in this between this story and our calling as disciples. Because Jesus sat down and taught from the boat, but for us, he's teaching from the book. He's opening those scriptures, okay? And when it says he puts out a little, it means we just need to just move away from the shore a bit, away from the crowds, so we can focus, not be distracted. We can meditate on God's word. We can understand the word more when there's not other people around us talking or noise going on. But then to be really effective Christians, we take on board what has been said, and then we have to put out into the deep, okay? If we really want to experience the fullness of what God has to offer, we have to put out into the deep. Why the deep? Well, because in the shallows is where the small fish are, okay? But it's also where we're still largely in control. I mean, I know if you walk in the sea and you're walking up to your knees or something like that, it's easy to just turn around or walk or whatever. We're fully in control. But you go into deep, your water's up here, it's much harder to have control over. You're almost your feet aren't touching the ground. You've got to rely on something else. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to rely totally in him. So he's in control, not us. So Simon Peter said, yeah, we've worked all night and caught zilch. Or what he's really saying is, this will be a waste of time. As he's thinking out in his mind, I'm a fisherman. I, believe me, I know. 
We've been out all night. He's probably just thinking, we've just cleaned the net. So now you want us to go out again and waste time doing all this? But Jesus had seen the big catch. He knew what was out there. And our response might be an excuse too. You know, I'm too young. I'm not perfect. I'm not in the right place. I don't know. I won't know what to say. I won't know what to do. But no, in the Bible, all through the Bible, God uses seemingly um, the most unlikely people to do his work. Okay, it's not necessarily pastors or leaders. It's just anybody who makes themselves available to him. So the Bible, um, well, I mean, faith, Peter says, but because you said so, okay, because you say so, Jesus, I will do what you ask. And that's what the Bible says to us. Do we do that? Do we say, because you say this, Jesus, I will do that? Or do we say, well, no, it doesn't fit in with my plans today, or I don't actually want to do that, it's too difficult. But our faithful, our faithful response should be, because you say so, I will do. Because when we do things, we will notice that our experience of Jesus will change because we will see things that we could, couldn't possibly imagine were going to happen beforehand. And the story ends with Jesus saying, do not be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. You know, like Hagar, like Elisha's servant, both of them had the same thing. Do not be afraid. And this is our trouble. We're afraid. We're worried that we can't do things. But Jesus just wants us to make ourselves available and says, do not be afraid. You know, fear cripples faith. But we, we need to see we're never alone, okay? Never alone. Remember, Hagar, when she thought she was alone, there was an angel nearby who heard the boy crying. Elisha's servant had a great protection of a huge army with chariots of fire all around him. In John 4, verses 34 to 35, it says, um, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Remember, Pastor Paul's just been speaking the last few weeks about the will of God. How do we find the will of God? We find it in the scriptures. And his will is to finish the work he has sent us to do. And he says, do you not say four months more than the harvest? Because this is the trouble with us. We prevaricate. I will leave it. Four months more. Four months more. That's great. I haven't got to do anything for a while. But he says, no, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest now. You know, we may not see it with our natural eyes, but Jesus is telling us to put on our spiritual spectacles and see what he sees. You know, Pastor Paul just said, Pentecostal churches are growing, and I believe that this church is going to grow exponentially as well in the near future. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. You know, it's beyond our understanding, um, the, the immensity and the power and the glory of God's kingdom, that what he wants us to experience. You know, we, don't want, we, we live in a humdrum world. We, we might think we're sailing along nicely, but we could have so much more. You know, the supernatural is just so much more that we could have at our disposal. And there's nothing we can do in our strength. It's in God's strength. But we have a power at work within us that is able to carry out his purpose and do super abundantly, far over and above all that we dare ask or think, infinitely beyond our highest prayers, desires, thoughts, hopes, or dreams. You know, that's God speaking to us. He wants to change our lives you know, beyond what we could even imagine. Even, well, <laughs> you just can't even imagine what that means, really. Beyond your highest dreams, your highest hopes. 
It's something that we just haven't even thought of, take us to a new realm. Yeah, I'm going to leave with this today, and it's Revelation 3.8. And this is Jesus speaking. See, and this is it, spiritual realms. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. It's an open door, right? No one can shut that door because it's spiritually open. If we remain faithful to Jesus in word and deed, against increasing opposition, if we keep opening the scriptures, we guard our hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us, use his strength and not our own strength, and look into uh, the future with spiritual eyes, God has opened a great door of opportunity, okay? Right in front of us, not behind us or to the side of us, it's right in front of us. But do you see it? That's the question. And the other question is, do you want it? Okay? How badly do you want it? So I'm, I'm just going to end there, I think. But I'm just going to say that it says in the Bible that Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He's not going to push his way into your life. But if, if you want to know Jesus, Jesus we've been talking about, you, you, might want to, you might have heard of him. You might want to know more deeply about what he really has planned for your life, the love he has for you, and you want to experience all these things. And I just just come up at the end because he's, he's opened that door for you today. Like Pastor Wendy said earlier on, there's a door open here for you. Yeah, we've already seen the, spiritual, the Holy Spirit working in people this morning, okay? And it's been working. I firmly believe it's been working while I've been talking. It's continued to work in your hearts. But if you want to get to know Jesus and you want to explore the kingdom of God and you, you want to have salvation and be forgiven all your sins and spend eternity with God then just come up and either see me or speak to Pastor Paul or Pastor Wendy after the uh, service and, um, and we'll just pray with you we'd love to pray with you and just speak with you